Hello, welcome to PSR, People Speaking Rail. I'm your host, Mike Bowdendistel. I um, just want to check with production that you can hear me because I didn't hear that intro uh, going in. Okay, great. So uh, here, um, talking about rail uh, this afternoon. So this is a PSR, People Speaking Rail, um, and going to interview Jake Hoffman, uh, Chief Technology Officer of Gnosis, in a minute. Um, and before I do that, I'm going to walk you through a few um, articles on FreightWaves.com. Um, sort of the first one uh, I'd like to bring up here written by John Kingston, uh, just published uh, today. And so John Kingston went up to, um, you know, I guess he lives in New York, but there's a big conference in, in New York, the rail industry every November called Rail Trends. That's with uh, Tony Hatch is the one that, that hosts that. He's an independent uh, rail analyst. I've been to this uh, conference a few times. And uh, you know, Tony uh, does a great job of bringing in just really a lot of the top names in the rail industry, a lot of class one uh, you know, rail executives. Um, there's always representation from, from unions, always representations from the U.S. Surface Transportation Board, which economically regulates uh, the railroads. And uh, because John Kingston goes to this conference every year, he really spends a lot of time sort of focusing in on sort of what changed in the, in, in, from, the, from the previous year. And that gives you some thoughts in terms of, um, you know, what people in the industry are thinking about, sort of what's, what's changed and, you know, kind of encouraging. I mean, he said that, you know, the sort of the um, theme was that there's some green shoots in the, what he called beleaguered sector. And I think uh, a lot of those green shoots were related to rail service. One of the, the big themes I've heard on, um, on this show from interviewing various uh, shippers, various interest groups is that, you know, rail service really has improved. And I think that was one of the themes that, you know, John you know, took away as as well. Um, and that seems to be translating into improved intermodal volume, have a sonar chart uh, to, to that effect. And it actually shows that the fourth quarter, um, they see the white line is 2023. And quarter to date, um, in, starting in, in October, the, the domestic loaded containerized volume up four and a half percent. And so, so that's actually a little better than what we've seen on the, the highway. And so, um, you know, freight uh, traffic, you know, had a fairly good October. It's been a little bit muted in November. I think that's true in the rail sector as well. It seems like the rail sector in October took back a little bit of share they had lost um, uh, from, from the highway. Uh, Kingston's article talks about that. Some of the, the, the quotes that people had in the, at the conference was that intermodal rail, intermodal lost 1.4 million loads since 2007 which translates into 3.5 billion in revenue. A lot of the executives were touting uh, improved rail service like Keith Creel, CEO of Can uh, Canadian Pacific, Kansas City Southern, talking about service between Chicago and Mexico, four days. So that's gonna be competitive with, with, with the highway. We think that would take at least the three days um, on, on the highway. And um, you know, even you know Chuck Baker of Shortline uh, Railroad and, and uh, Adrian Bailey of Oliver Wyman you know, talked about how rail services improved. A lot of those um, you know people actually had Chuck Baker on this show not too long ago, and uh, they really do tell it like it is uh, when when rail services is poor. So I thought those things were good. There's a lot of focus on safety as well. CSX talking about how the East Palestine Ohio derailment on Norfolk Southern really is an issue for the whole industry, not just for um, Norfolk uh, Southern. Also, uh, John Kingston also wrote an, wrote an article the previous um, you know business day or two um, on from takeaways from the conference. And one of the the big panelists always is from the Surface Transportation Board this year. Um, Marty Oberman was uh, at the conference. Marty Oberman is the current chairman of the Surface Transportation Board, and 
He's always very outspoken and at the conference was no exception. Um, and even though he did talk about a number of positive developments, like some of the railroads collaborations, we've seen announcements of, of railroads collaborating for um, longer intermodal lengths of haul, really extending the reach of the railroads. He was critical of Jim Venna's first few moves. Jim, Jim Venna was recently um, appointed CEO of Union Pacific. And he had a long tenure at uh, Canadian National Railway under uh, Hunter Harrison, so is um, you know very much I think a proponent. At least the perception is a proponent of, of precision scheduled railroading, having an efficient railway operation. And um, Oberman criticized some of the things like the the, the layoffs in, in terms of maintenance way workers, sort of reducing the capital envelope for maintenance. Union Pacific says, well, you know, their president Beth uh, Whited was there, and she said that it really hasn't been they haven't been delaying. Um, you know, capital investment, they said they're still going to spend $3.7 billion on capital investment, significant portion of that allocated to maintenance. They do say it's hard to staff in certain places like North Platte, ne Platte Nebraska, where they have a big, um, you know, yard operation. So I encourage you to read through that article and would also encourage you to read one of Joanna Marsh's articles I'm going to highlight here. It was published about a week ago, but I think these, these comments are still very relevant. So the Surface Transportation Board it gets an earful on proposed rule for reciprocal switching. So I've often had various um, you know, shipper groups on this show or various, um, you know, various other constituencies in the rail industry have asked them sort of what they want the STB to focus on. And the shippers always seem to say reciprocal switching, which is a way to enhance railway competition by mandating that another competing railroad could, could quote something and, you know, for an interchange point. Uh, to, so there's a second alternative for captive shipper. Now, what the shippers say about the current proposed rule, not surprisingly, they said it doesn't go far enough because the proposed rule only addresses reciprocal switching when there's a service failure. They want it to go beyond that and say, well, you just, the service was okay, quoted an unreasonable rate. That's not in the, in the current proposal. And then they say the service you know, has to be poor for 12 weeks, which is extended period of time. Shippers would like it to, to be, have more immediate um, correction. The rails say, well, the you know, definitions for rail service aren't exactly clear. They're going to have to invest more money in order to uh, be able to provide that data. And then the, the unions, uh, interestingly, I think maybe what was incremental to me is the unions say that they really would prefer the STB focus in on the common carrier obligation rather than reciprocal um, switching. And uh, so this is, um, you know, companies can, can continue to submit comments uh, up until December uh, 6th. And you do have to wonder with uh, Marty Oberman, chairman of Surface Transportation Board, um, you know, departing. He said he's not going to seek another term, although he is going to stay on for a few months after his term ends at the end of this year. If that, um, you know, makes any less of a push to enhance railway competition. He has, you know, has been very um, you know, tough on the, on, on the railroads uh, regarding service. So I encourage you to read all those uh, articles, all really well done. Um, and with that, I want to bring on today's guest, which is Jake Hoffman, Chief Technology Officer of Gnosis Freight. There you are. Good to see you, Jake. Good to see you, Mike. Good to be here. Yeah, so I saw some of your colleagues at um, F3 a couple weeks ago, and they were telling me a little bit about uh, Gnosis, and I was pretty intrigued by the you know, concept of being able to really track these containers. Um, and and want to just hear from you. Maybe you can just give us a little bit of an overview of, of, of Gnosis. Sure. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, by the way, super jealous. I wasn't at F3 this year. Heard it was an incredible time. Uh, definitely going to make it there next year. Um, so Gnosis, uh, we are a software company 
in the space of visibility. Now, in visibility for us, we've nailed down into what we call container lifecycle management, which is everything around the move of a container. And for the most part, our customers are the uh, international containers, so international freight, anything moving on a vessel, um, and then anything moving inland on the rail, and you know, a lot of the things that, that you're an expert at on, on that rail move. Um, we started just as a software provider, uh, just getting, aggregating EDI data, API data from different people in the supply chain, and then uh, servicing that to our customers, writing automation on top of it, delivery orders, um, trying to, to manage demerge and detention. We did that for a couple of years. Uh, and then got to the point where we were relying on the data so much and kept having some issues with uh, providers and different things where we just decided to go build our own data model. You know, there wasn't one place we could go where we felt super confident in the tracking data that we were going to get the most up-to-date discharge date, last free day, um, the rail milestones and all those things that, that come with it. Um, so we went and developed our own data model, did that a couple of years ago, and that's definitely been the fastest growing and most important part of our business because if the data is not good, all the things you try to do in the software are kind of a moot point at that, right? If you don't have good data to drive sending a delivery order or telling somebody when the last free day is or when a container is available to be picked up at an ocean terminal or a rail terminal, um, you're sending an email to something that, that isn't true. Um, so that's, that's what we've focused on and we continue to focus on. Yeah, what, what strikes me uh, about um, what's challenging about that whole process is that when you're looking at various pieces of data, it seems like you're taking them from a lot of different sources and trying to put them together and making sure they, because the various pieces of data don't talk to each other, right? The bill of lading doesn't necessarily talk to the, what the railroad is doing on their end. And so, so how do you, how do you manage um, those things? That's right. And it's, it's pretty complicated, uh, continues to be complicated. And you, know, you can't just query the same bill of lading with every single uh, source, right? And so what we do is we, we had noticed the way we've tried to do it is we like kind of identify what those different query parameters are and we frame everything up from the lens of what an ocean move, whether there's a rail leg included in there or not, um, what that entire frame looks like. And then to your point, you know, the, the ocean bill of lading may not match up with what the rail carrier sees, but the equipment number does. So a container number, you strip off the check digit, that's what the rail carriers use to track containers. And um, so we have kind of this giant, skeleton, so to speak, of what a container's journey should look like. And then there's different queries out of that that go and get data from different sources and pipe them all into the same standardized container model, right? Whether it's the rail carrier, ocean carrier, ocean terminal, satellite data where you can see where the vessel is. There's all those different places we go look for data and then standardize it, enrich it, and do a lot of different things to just show our customer that one essentially a row in Excel that's like, hey, this is all the things that's happened to this container over its journey. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you really are bringing together a lot of different things into one. And so, so what are the, the biggest pain points you hear from customers in terms of not having visibility? Is there any sort of um, you know, portion of the, of the move um, that they're kind of blind to? Sure, I mean, for a while, it has been that rail piece. You know, for an ocean move, uh, joining that data for, you know, say a container coming into Los Angeles and getting on BNSF or, or UP or you know, going across the United States, that has been somewhat of a black box whenever it leaves the terminal and on the West Coast and when it and then maybe until it gets to Chicago or gets to Memphis or wherever it's going inland. I mean, that's where the rail carriers have been servicing that 
for a while actually being the mover of the container, but maybe there wasn't as much granularity in the data that they shared with the ocean carrier or whatever it was. And then the subsequent third party of this transaction, the actual customer getting the container at the end of the road, didn't have any additional visibility into where that container was. And so that's where other people have done it. You know, we, we feel like we were one of the first movers in going directly to the rail carriers, joining it with that data that we get from the ocean carrier, normalizing that data, where, what freight station accounting code is this container at? Is What's the normalizing the latitude and longitude, showing it to our customer on a map so that they can actually visualize what's really happening with their shipments. And then when you get that level of granularity with the data and the actual location and things as it's going along, you can make predictions. You can say it's 40% of the way there. And we've seen transit times take X amount of days and you can put in speed and congestion at the ocean terminals and at the rail terminals where it's going to give your customers better predictions about when they can expect containers to be available. And that's something that we got a lot of positive feedback on in the past couple of years as we continue to roll that out to new customers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I hear a lot is that a shipper will know what vessel it's on if they're importing goods and, and, you know, but, but they, but they don't know is let's say it goes to the port of LA and Long Beach, how long the container is going to be sitting at, at port of LA and Long Beach before it's on the train. And they don't know if that's going to be a day or five days or eight days. It's, it, that's where they sort of lack their visibility. So I, it's easy to see how this really helps them get an idea of when you're ultimately going to need, uh, you know, drainage capacity. Um, you know, you talk a lot on your website about, you know, reducing a demurrage and detention costs. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you're able to help um, your clients uh, reduce those costs? Sure. Yeah. And I know we, we talked a little bit offline about the savings with, with doing that. Sometimes the numbers can seem kind of crazy, but really it's the large shippers, you know, in the U.S. or elsewhere. Uh, the U.S. is, you know, the highest charging ports, like four of the five most expensive ports for demurrage are in the United States. Um, and so that's why these these bills the past couple of years have been so high. But when you have these these large enterprise shippers that are moving thousands of containers a month, the only way that they had previously to aggregate that, understand it, and identify those exceptions is to either rely on a third party, so to rely on a drage provider, a freight forwarder, or somebody to do that for them, or to take in data from all these different reports and spreadsheets from ocean carriers, from freight forwarders, whoever is getting this data and giving it to them. But then there's an entire team at some of these shippers that's responsible for putting all these reports together, you know, writing VLOOKUPs that take, hey, the discharge date is this, and that means we have four days, the last three days, whatever. So the, the time they get all these reports together, they could have the most complex Excel sheet in the world with all these different macros and everything. But then the second that they do that and they start creating this report, all the data is old. A container could have discharged, it could have been available, whatever it is. And so to take all that data, make it live, and then automate like we do, um, you know, some of those notifications for when things are available, when last free day is approaching and those things to do it all proactively instead of having to do that aggregation of something on the back end services the or surfaces, not services, surfaces the exceptions earlier as opposed to later and allows people to take action as opposed to just kind of auditing after it's already happened. I mean, it's, it's crazy that doing that proactively can result in those kind of savings, but when a container sitting at a terminal is 350 to $500 a day, and you have thousands that are currently in, at risk of that happening, you don't have time to waste. And that's where every second really counts and getting that stuff done as early as possible. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so you're saving on a couple different fronts. I mean, you're not just saving the, the merge and detention costs, you're saving all of this all this time, which those people can be redeployed to do something else and you know fix issues instead of just searching for the issues in the first place. Um, so so yeah, that's pretty um, that's pretty neat. Um, wanted to ask you, I mean, you, you have so much data, you, you must see industry trends before sort of the rest of us can see them, things like when rail service becomes an issue, you must be the first to, to, to see it. Um, you know, we hear a lot from, you know, some of the biggest CPGs will say that they talk to their railroads every week, but you know, not everyone is sort of has that stature, there may be a little less vis- visibility. But it's been interesting to, to hear any sort of industry trends you're seeing, like, you know, shifts in um, you know, transit times, you know, certain ports that are more efficient, certain routings that are more efficient. We know the Panama Canal is an issue, you know, anything like, like that, I'd be interested to, to hear. Sure. So, yeah, a couple of points. You mentioned the Panama Canal. Panama Canal, of course, is a lot of our customers. They see it in the news. And, um, you know, it's it is it's it's big news that the Panama Canal has uh, drought issues, the the depth of the water. And there's a big line waiting for vessels to go through there. I would be I, I wanted to mention, you know, there was that article, uh, I guess it was about a month ago at this point or maybe a little bit longer about the um, the customer that paid like $4 million to get to the front of the line at the Panama Canal when there were there was that long line. Mm-hmm. Well, the article that was posted or in, in, in multiple different places um, showed a picture of a container ship and said, hey, someone paid $4 million. But the person that actually paid $4 million was like a chemical shipper with a tanker. Um, and so it was. it's not the container vessels that are sitting there waiting and paying $4 million to get to the front. Um, most of the container vessels are on a normal schedule, a normal rotation, that they're making reservations far in advance um, so that there is a delay. It still can be impacted. You know, if they get held up at a port and they're going to miss their reservation, then they can be subjected to that line. Um, mm-hmm. But that doesn't happen as often. I learned this from Stephen Edwards, the, the CEO at the Port of Virginia. I was at a conference with him last week, and he was talking to a lot of people about that. So I thought it was super interesting. Um, and then as far as, you know, delays, there still are delays. I mentioned whenever a vessel doesn't get there and has to wait in line, uh, had one of our data scientists, Luke Jenkins, wrote a query just to look and see like, hey, any vessels that are going through Panama Canal, what is the average delay we're seeing? It's on the magnitude of three to four days, which we've been tracking these things for a long time. And three to four days, if, if you ask anybody in ocean shipping, three to four day delay, that's not that bad. Uh, it happens and, you know, things get held up at the port, whatever happens. So that's one example on the Panama Canal front. On the intermodal front, you know, the different routings you can take if you're getting a container from, I don't know, China, going through LA, going through Seattle, Tacoma, whatever it is, there's certain things that that happen. We don't even proact, like we don't identify it. Our system just knows what's happening because it's monitoring as all these things are happening in real time. So the example is for whatever reason right now, and there's you know, retroactively, we could go look and we could say, is it because there's a labor issue at the terminal? Is it because there's congestion or vessels are taking longer, whatever it is? We've seen in the, just in the past month, Seattle, Tacoma to Chicago and to these places is taking five to six days longer than Los Angeles, Long Beach to Chicago, Memphis and those places. Now, what is the actual reasoning behind that? You know, we, we can dig into it and we can figure out what these reasons are. But our system is just continuously updating because it sees all these things that are happening and it's measuring the date of discharge of a container to when it gets on the rail that you mentioned earlier. Um, and it's just automatically using that information to project and give our customers an idea of when they can expect that container. Um, so there, there's other reasons and you can you can analyze it and work and, and do those things. But we, we try to let the system kind of work that out on its own. 
Yeah, and you really have to know what's happening kind of in real time in order to make a routing decision to not get caught up in some kind of congestion. And in some ways, it almost doesn't really matter why there's congestion. I mean, whether it's there's a flood or you know not having the people at the, the, the yard or, or, or whatever, it's just, it's really kind of that there is an issue. And then sometimes an alternative route is better than you would you would think. I mean, some, some of that Panama Canal, like some things we've reported on is, you know, in some cases, the delays weren't as bad as the, the perception. So you know, at other times it was worse than the perception. So it just seems like kind of an objective way to, to, to look at things, um, you know, using, using your system. Uh, you mentioned on your, your website, the, the sort of the booking and scheduling are unique to each company that companies do this differently. Can, can you explain that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So that's, <clears throat> you're mentioning scheduling and scheduling for us to, for the, the people that are listening, scheduling we consider and we talk about just in general format is the scheduling of the pickup of the container and the delivery to a warehouse or a distribution center, wherever that container is going. And so we we know we we kind of our product is customizable by design at the end. We know that everybody's different and then we have made our product to adapt to that. And what I mean is like sometimes maybe they have a facility where the drage carrier is sending an email and saying, hey, I'm going to make a delivery at 5 p.m. today. So it's actually the trucker, the person that's delivering the container that's setting the appointment and, and kind of driving that. And then sometimes if it's a live unload and you got to play in labor, maybe a warehouse is the person that's doing that. And so we've kind of made our system modular from the certain aspect where you can group like a this set of customers follows this model, this set of customers follows this model. And we've seen so many different examples now where everybody does things differently and we just continue to adapt our product. Uh, to kind of encapsulate what all those different potential scenarios are. And that's just on the, the scheduling front. At the very beginning of the process of moving a container on the booking front, um, that can be, you know, the factory, uh, the supplier is making a booking. Um, it could be an origin booking agent is managing that entire booking process. I mean, there's, so there's even more complexity on the front end when you're dealing with making an ocean booking with a freight forwarder, a subsequent ocean carrier, um, all these different people that are involved. And so we continue to adapt our product to meet all these different things. So it's not as black and white as, hey, we're Gnosis, here's our platform, good luck. This is how we do things, right? We understand that people's complex or, or supply chains are super complex. And we try to at least make our product encapsulate 90% of those things and then work with our customer on the 10% that we can't do out of the box. Yeah, really a lot going on there. It's just with lots of different pieces of data coming from different sources, you know, com companies that are very specific. I wanted to ask you also, I mean, are, are there any particular shipper verticals that fit into your system particularly well? I know a lot of the sort of logos you mentioned on your website tend to be industrial, um, automotive, a lot of tires and, and, and those companies, um, some retailers in there as well. But is there any sort of industry vertical that, that really fits well? Yeah, I mean... We, so we started in furniture, right? Furniture was our, our first kind of customer vertical that we were in. We got into that market and we understood it super well. Um, but then, you know, since then, that was where we started and we understood like selling inventory as it's on the water. Uh, we'd be tracking like which couch within a container was sold um, as it's, you know, eight weeks away, right? And so allowing our furniture customers to kind of prioritize then. Then we got into the, you know, automotive space and tires and things where it's, What's really important is there's a date that this container has to get to a distribution center or else it's going to cut, you know, shut down a production line. And so as we continue to expand to these different verticals, we gain a little bit of expertise in how their supply chains are working. 
Um, mm-hmm. And then we can adapt our, our process accordingly. So I'd say, you know, there's not really one that, that we specialize in. We continue to adapt. You know, it was furniture, tires. We're getting into discount, retail, um, garments. You know, there, there's all these different verticals that all have their own kind of special ways that the supply chain works. And since our platform and our, our engineers, every single account manager for all of our customers is an engineer. And so we take that approach because they can sit there with a customer and understand that problem and apply that engineering mindset of, oh, it would be really cool if I could write an optimization algorithm that would look at these variables X, Y, and Z, and then output it for my customer and that would make their lives so much easier. And we do that by design because we know that everything, every single customer supply chain is different. Um, and we want to be able to adapt to that and provide solutions for them in that method. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You mentioned offline that you do um, domestic intermodal containers in addition to international intermodal containers. You know, how, how are those different? Is there added complexity with domestic? Because a lot of times you would have international freight being transloaded into domestic freight and, you know, carrier has to get the container from, from somewhere. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And that we, you know, I, like you said, we talked about it offline a little bit. We kind of stumbled into it by accident where we had to establish these connections to the, the rail carriers to understand the move at the, the final piece of an ocean journey, right? It's like, hey, it's moving inland, comes to a terminal, it's going to a rail terminal. But then we realized there, there's this whole entire world of this inter, intermodal domestic, you know, container moves um, that we could also track because it's using the same rail terminals, the same infrastructure and things that we're already um, helping our customers understand. There is a little bit of a difference in it, you know, getting into the technical piece of it, of course, is like for an ocean move, you know where it starts and where it ends because you have kind of this plan um, of an ocean move. It's coming into LA, which we know, we know that it's booked to Chicago. We know where to look for these data points. Um, and then intermodal domestic move, you know, we can get the data from the rail carrier itself. Um, but if a customer just says, hey, this equipment's what I care about, do they care about it right now or do they care about it uh, when it was on the rail 14 days ago? You know, and, and that's where you get into um, working with the rail carriers and understanding letters of authorization and who wants to see what. And then we can frame it up on our side with like, hey, we can get a bill of lading or a way bill or whatever to, to make sure that we understand what it looks like. And so there is more complexity and just data cleanliness and understanding what people want to see. Um, but, it, but it is great working with the rail carriers. They've been fantastic with their APIs and their data connectivity to work with us on that. Um, it's it's been great and it's it's a cool thing for us to get into and use our connections to provide value to our customers in different ways great and for those who want to learn more and um, sort of see how you're you can add value to their supply chains how can people reach out to you jake and gnosis right sure yeah you can uh, add me on linkedin i'm on linkedin all the time now um just jake hoffman you can you can search me at gnosis freight on there uh twitter jake underscore hoffman 19 is is my twitter and um, I, you know, gnosisfreight.com is our website. You can go submit a form on there, learn about all the stuff that Mike and myself have been talking about. Um, but yeah, anybody, if you have any questions or anything, would love to, to talk about this stuff. Thanks for having me on. It's been great. I, I love having these conversations and getting deep into the weeds of all the tech of it. Yeah, you bet. Hope everyone has a great Thanksgiving. <laughs>